Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I am Tracy Hotchner, best friend to dogs and kitty cats listening on Peconic Public Broadcasting in the Hamptons, on Robin Hood Radio in Connecticut and the Berkshires, and by podcast everywhere else. Please give a listen to all my new Pet Talk radio shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network, co-hosted by top pet experts at RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Precious Cat Litters, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, the Animal Specialty Center in Westchester, New York, and Waruva Pet Foods. Waruva is a family-owned company that makes their canned foods in a human food facility because they believe our pets deserve to eat as well as we do. All the flavors of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brands, are made to appeal to finicky little dogs and choosy cats, especially those who are trying to transition away from unhealthy dry foods. The Waruva family chooses not to make any dry food because cats are obligate carnivores and they believe that for optimal health, they should eat only meat. I have a wonderful lineup for you today. Mary Strauss, who is the great, great writer from the Whole Dog Journal, I'm sure if you look back in your old Whole Dog Journals, you will see her name, wrote a number of times about the raccoon attack on her little pooch, and she's going to talk to us about what that was like and maybe some pointers for the rest of us, how to protect especially our little dogs. Then Carrie Huter from the Animal Specialty Center is going to talk about what 18 hours are like in the day of a veterinary internist quite a roller coaster ride. And then Arnie Arluk is here, the professor who co-wrote the book, The Photographed Cat, amazing photos and writing about the feline ties from 1890 to 1940. So it's going to be a wonderful day. I'm going to jump right in and say hi to Mary Strauss, who I am so delighted to meet after years and years of reading the great articles that you write for the Whole Dog Journal, Mary. Tracy, thank you so much for your kind words. Well, it's a pleasure, but unfortunately, I here I am inviting you on about something that's kind of so personal and scary, and I should have invited you on, and I will invite you back on, about some of the really thought-provoking and marvelous informational educational topics you write about. But this one just jumped out at me, um, that in you live in Northern California, correct? Yes, the San Francisco Bay Area. Right, and I live on the Northeast, where there's loads of raccoons also, And the idea that a raccoon would attack one of our dogs, I guess one of the reasons that that what you wrote about really struck me was that your dog, Ella, being little, could have died. I did have, right in East Hampton, not one but two of my big Weimaraners attacked by a raccoon who the best I could figure out was that they had cornered the raccoon inside the deer fencing on our property. And they were shredded. I mean, they had to be stitched back up. And the vet said, well, this could only have been a raccoon. And luckily, they were up to date on their rabies. But with your little little Ella, this was such a shock um, because you were just out on your own property having a little nighttime pee walk, right? And then tell a little about what happened and, and how, it, how it left her. It was a shock. Um, it was about 10 o'clock at night. I'd taken her out um, for last night pee before bed. Um, She was on the grass. I was standing right next to her, and she started barking at something on the fence. I couldn't see it because it was too dark, and I figured it was just one of the neighborhood cats. But in a second, that thing came down the fence so fast and attacked her, standing right next to me, still attacked my dog. 
And Ella is a Norwich Terrier. Um, she weighs 11 pounds. The, the raccoon definitely outweighed her. And despite being a terrier, she is not feisty. She doesn't want to fight with anything. She just wanted to run away. Um, and she tried to run away, but the raccoon was too fast for her. And, and kept, at her, kept, at, kept at her, even though a human was standing right next to her, which should yes. have been a deterrent. And even though that she tried so to surprising. escape. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I caught up with them on my deck. The raccoon had her pinned down on her back, and I knew that her life was in danger, that if I did not intervene, my dog might very well die right then and there in front of my eyes. And so here I am. I'm, I'm literally barefoot. You know, it's nighttime, wow. trying to figure out what to do. My first instinct was I reached for my dog, and then I stopped myself because I thought if I try to pick her up, right. that raccoon's just going to keep attacking and it's That's just going right. to start biting me as well. So I went for the raccoon instead. Good decision. Grabbed, but did you have, did you have a, a, a weapon? Did you find a weapon I to had hand? nothing close at hand. And I didn't feel I had time to think about it or go find something. It was kind of funny when I talked to animal control afterwards and asked them what they suggested I should yes. do. They suggested I should carry a cell phone and, and call, call oh, yeah, animal right. control. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, <laughs> like I was, was, I was once help. mugged in Central Park when I was coming back from a tennis lesson in the 96th Street um, course, middle of the day, walking towards Fifth Avenue, attacked, and I attacked this big guy with my tennis racket. I just sort of hit him around the head and screamed at him, get away and go away. And then the cop said to me afterwards, oh, my God, you should never have fought back. You should have called for the police. What, and be dead or raped? I mean, yeah, you have to do something at the moment, but you, we also exactly. know raccoons are so dangerous. They have claws yes. and teeth and rabies, and oh, my yes. God, so yes. scary. So I, I grabbed it by the tail, and figuring that was the, the safer end, and I started pulling back, and it had hold of my dog's head and would not let go. So she was pulling away. Uh -huh. I was pulling up and back, and finally either the raccoon let go or my dog um, pulled away, and she just ran straight into the house. And I knew that if, if I didn't keep that raccoon away from my body, I was going to be in big trouble. So I started swinging it around in a circle just to use centrifugal <laughs> force to keep it away from, from, from my legs, you know. Jesus. And I made about two full rotations and also to build up a little momentum. And then I launched it as far away from me as I could, which was maybe six feet, you know, because it was heavy. Those things are They're big. 20, They're pounds. big. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that, so and you kind of had the adrenaline of the mother whose child is pinned under a car, and you could lift the car. Undoubtedly, right? yes. Because I mean, that yes. really is like um, a moment of such adrenaline and such uh, yeah. such in, in, ingenuity to think what yeah. to do. Or you didn't have time to think; it was instinct. It was like raw it, instinct. It is, yeah. And it landed when it landed about six feet away on my deck. It actually turned back towards me. And that was one of the scariest moments. I thought it was going to come back at me. And I was screaming at it at the top of my lungs and trying to make myself look big, you know, yes, the way they tell yes. you to do with mountain yes. lions and things. And right. it finally turned around and walked away. Um, and I went running in my house. To, I didn't know what I was going to find. I had no idea how badly she was injured. And I found her in my office. She had blood on her face, and she was holding up one leg. So we just immediately jumped in the car and drove to the emergency vet. And fortunately, it turned out she had some puncture wounds on her muzzle. She had puncture wounds under each armpit, and that was all. 
they cleaned her up. They they drained the the you know where she had been bitten so it wouldn't end up getting infected. Gave her antibiotics. Gave her pain medication. And um, fortunately, she healed up physically um, very well. And within two three days, she was she was feeling fine and and acting normal physically. But it left an emotional scar. She wouldn't go she in was, your backyard after that, right? She was terrified to go into the backyard. And quite frankly, I was a little scared myself. It's, it's really frightening. I, you know, I love animals. I've, I've handled raccoons before in the really? distant past. Yeah, I took care of a baby raccoon for somebody once, which uh, um, convinced me I did not want to own a raccoon. I'll tell you that much. But, they're intense. You know, I mean, they're wild animals I, yeah, for sure. But I, exactly. did, you, did you and Ella have to get... Did you have to get rabies shots? Did she have to get no. more rabies shots? Thank goodness she was current on her rabies. Um, out here, believe it or not, on the East Coast, raccoons are the primary vector for rabies. But on the West Coast, they almost never have rabies. Our primary vector is bats, followed That's by right. a small number of skunks and foxes. Um, but still, there's some danger. And had she not been vaccinated, you know, it could have been problems because if the government gets involved, you know, if, if officials find out there's quarantine requirements, That's right. there's all kinds of things. And in fact, I was shocked to discover, I thought because she was current on her vaccination, that there would be no quarantine and what happened is it turns out that with no, if you're, if you're not current, they quarantine them on your property for six months. But even wow. with the current vaccination, they wanted to quarantine her for a month. A which month? Which was um, a really wow. upsetting, particularly when raccoons don't even really carry rabies out here. But, um, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to work around the rules, and they're different in every state. And the local animal control officials have a lot of leeway in terms of what they choose to do. So once well, the, the fact that they the fact that they it. didn't the fact that they didn't treat you made it clear they did not think that 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 raccoon had rabies because right, otherwise yeah. and, here on the east coast I believe by again law they have to give the human it's no longer the 14 rabies shots in the stomach which we right. used to hear about as children it's three, I believe, a series of three in the arm, and they're somewhat right. painful, and the government pays, I think, or otherwise they'd be very costly. But uh, that was, you know, any contact with a bat, again, like you, bats are considered to carry them on the, on the East Coast as well, even if the right. bat didn't show any sign of having rabies, just was in someone's house, and she had sort of tried to trap it. But what was interesting yeah. was... This raccoon, it turns out, and this is the important thing, I guess, for us to know, is that you discovered even you, you and Ella had a reason to continue to be scared because this raccoon really did have a nest of babies. And that was what was making her so vicious. And they were That's under your deck, right? Yes, she had uh, 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 babies under my deck that I was totally unaware of. And that's the reason that she attacked. We were standing between her and her babies, completely unbeknownst to me, of course, at right. the time that she attacked. So it really helped me when I found that out. I, I didn't feel like it was such a random thing. I didn't right. feel like, you know, like it was going to come at any moment. I, we, I was taking her out front after that to, to go potty and everything. But when evening would come, you know, I was scared. I was carrying a broom and an air horn and <laughs> checking under the bushes and just scared to death that something was going to jump out you. at us. It's but, 
learning that she had a, you know, what in her mind was a good reason for attacking made me feel a little bit more reassured that this wasn't something that was just going to happen at random anytime we went outside. Well, one thing that I learned from, from your, your, your next article about trying to extricate her and the, and the babies from under the deck, which was quite an ordeal, is that it makes a lot of sense for everybody to seal off the underside of their decks, either with strong chicken wire or that kind of fake wood that looks like a kind of pickety, fancy stuff. I mean, don't you think that's something that, that we should urge every anyone to do that has a deck in any climate? Because if wildlife goes under there, it's a good place to make a nice, dry, warm nest. And you're in, you and your pets are in jeopardy. Yes, decks and under houses is another place that they will go if there's any kind of a screen that's open or they can get in. And I've heard that just even piling up bricks um, can help deter at least raccoons. Um, skunks apparently are more of a digger, and so they might have be more likely to get in there. But it's an inexpensive, a less expensive solution to pile up bricks. They don't have to be mortared in to try to block off access um, if you need to. I ended up, I, I hired a professional company. I didn't want to take any chances at that point. And once she was gone, they installed, they, they actually dig a, um, dig a trench, fill it with concrete, put in this, this wow. mesh and bolt wow. it to the deck so Jeez. that nothing is ever getting under there again. Well, you we know, you, at least you and Ella you know, can exit your house and, and breathe deeply. I guess it's important to to realize that these kind of nooks and crannies can hold serious jeopardy for us. I mean, my 100-pound dogs were torn up, torn up. Yes. I wouldn't even yes. I didn't even couldn't even envision what kind of animal could do that on two subsequent days. And your little girl could in fact have been dead. Had you just said Ella go out and have a pee by yourself and she had barked at something in in the yard, she in fact might not be here today. Because if you hadn't been there to intervene, what would have saved her life? Nothing. Right, right. She's just a little, yeah. a little flip of it. And oh you know, God, Norwiches are so adorable. Mary, I just, I want to thank you. We've, we've run out of time, but I just want to thank you so much for coming on. I know that, that you don't like jump on the radio every other day, so you were a little, a little uncomfortable doing it. And I really appreciate that you shared the story because I think that any time that any of us suffers something really scary, especially in this case, thank God, a near tragedy only, that it's really important to share it with other people so that no one else finds themselves in your shoes or in little Ella's paws. And she's over it now, right? With just a, a little bit moment left to talk, she's pretty okay going outdoors now? Yes. Once I realized that the raccoon was living under the deck, I realized she knew that all along. Ah, Who knows would have been telling her that that right. animal was still there. Right. No wonder she didn't want to go out of into course. the back. Good Once point. it was gone, we started, I started working with her with treats and all positive, you know, reinforcement yep. to get yep. her used to going into the backyard again. And it only took about three weeks, I'd say, before she was comfortable. We we still keep more of an eagle eye out than we used to, both of yes. us. But, but, but not a bad thing. Now. Not a bad thing. Mary, exactly. thank you so much for all the wonderful writing you do in the Whole Dog Journal and especially sharing this personal saga. Send lots of hugs and kisses and treats from... Everyone at Dog Talk to Ella, we think she's a very brave little Norwich Terrier. And I look, or Norfolk, did I say it wrong? No, she's a Norwich. She is a Norwich, okay. Ears up, ears down. I look forward to inviting you back and talking about some of the great topics you write about for the Whole Dog Journal. And in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your weekend. 
Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We'll be right right back after this quick word with Dr. Carrie Huter and the Chinese crested dog that had a foreign object lodged in his esophagus. We'll be right back. Support for Dog Talk comes from the Animal Specialty Center in Yonkers, just north of New York City. ASC is a comprehensive veterinary facility with around-the-clock emergency care and specialist veterinarians who work as a team to help your own veterinarian manage a pet's challenging medical condition. At the Animal Specialty Center, there are board-certified specialists in oncology, cardiology, dermatology, neurology, surgery, internal medicine, and dentistry. Doctors who work together using innovative tools to diagnose and treat the four-legged members of your family using state-of-the-art medical options. This show is also supported by Platinum Performance, comprehensive nutritional supplements, which contain nutrients designed to improve overall health at a cellular level, especially joint health and the arthritis that comes with aging. Platinum Performance makes supplements for dogs, cats, horses, and people, too. I am back with Dr. Carrie Huter, who we had the pleasure of spending some time with a few months ago from the Animal Specialty Center in Yonkers, New York, which, as you know, is a sponsor of this show by my invitation and with my enthusiastic support of the belief that a specialty center and all the vet specialists that are under that roof can be of invaluable, life-saving, make a difference for you and your pet and When I lived out on the east end of Long Island, I didn't always know when an internist or a soft tissue surgeon, or in the case of Dr. Huter, your wife, Sue Sue Ettinger, the oncologist, was needed. And I I really appreciate you taking the time. Now, I want to explain to people, this show is live on Saturdays, but some of the guests have to be pre-recorded. And in this case, it's um, 920 on a Wednesday weekday night, and Dr. Huter has not begun to end his normal workday at the hospital. Or maybe, Dr. Huter, it's an abnormal workday. Have you ever had a day where you got to leave at 5 o'clock like bankers and other veterinarians do? Uh, they're pretty rare. My, my days go at least at least till 6. Um, average is about 7, I would say, but there are some days that go like this, and, and we'll go later. And I guess what to me is, is really interesting and, and, and brings out in me a great deal of admiration um, and relief to know that the level of care that a specialist can give exists and is accessible. I mean, there are people in parts of the country, they can just listen to this and weep because they don't have a board-certified internist that their own vet sends the pet to because things are either confusing or they've gone south. Now, you came in in the morning to just kind of give the picture of the day so that someone who might seek out an internist can understand the wide variety of problems, if you will. That you're, you're basically where the buck stops, right? So the problems that might come your way, you, you start your day at 9 a.m., is that right? No, no, I, I try to start my day at 8, although wow. some days I try to get here earlier if I know it's wow. And you have um, two, and you have two school-aged children. It's it's not like you're a bachelor who lives over the garage. Okay, so you get in and give us a sense of, of how many appointments are already waiting for you, or pre-planned, you know, ahead of time. Yeah, so a normal day for me, I, I will see appointments um, from ten in the morning till about uh, honestly about one o'clock in the afternoon. Then I have time from 1 to 3 o'clock to do any procedures I need to do. 
and then I see appointments from 3 till 6 o'clock, and then that's the end of my day as far as the schedule is concerned. However, um, on yeah, any however. given day, like this day, <laughs> right. uh, people can just roll through the door. I mean, I guess, I, I mean, do you have a person there who's board certified in emergency medicine? Uh, we do, we do. And so it, it's the emergency department is a critical part for a hospital like this because not only do they see emergencies and then get them to the right specialist, but when we do leave for the day, you know, we leave our cases in their hands. You know, we I talk see. about them and everything, but they take care of our cases, you know, at night. So there's always a doctor here 24 hours a day. No one's ever left unattended. Which, by uh, the way, but, may I just interrupt and, and, and let people know who have ever, as I did just one time when I was living in East Hampton and before that in Southampton, if you have left your own pet overnight at the vet and your pet's sick enough to need to stay at the vet, your pet is in a dark, or perhaps the lights are on, building that is unmanned from probably around 5 until around 8.30 or 9. That's a kind of scary thought when you think about the fact that they probably have some critical care issue, otherwise they could go home, right? No, it's true, and that's why a lot of places you know, will transfer cases when they feel they're too critical and they don't have the facilities overnight to monitor right, them, right. whereas we do. Right. Um, but that's my average day, but then what, what always you know, is the unknown is when I come in in the mornings, I will you know, pick up cases to evaluate from the emergency department that came in overnight. Oh, I see. And if, if they've deemed that these cases are sick and need to be hospitalized and internal medicine is the department for them, that, that's when I look at them in the morning before my appointments start. Wow. And sometimes it's just a few patients, but sometimes, like today, it's nine patients. And oh, my you gosh. To, you have to see those patients, evaluate them, um, talk to their owners, and come up wow. with a plan. Wow. And then and try to get your, your procedures done you know, throughout the day. So that's what can really you know, take your day, which was under control, and really you know, just make it a little bit more complicated. Yeah, on tilt. Can you give us, like, a, a nine is a lot probably to remember all at once, but just a sense of what kind of pets have come in between the end of the previous day through the night and now you as the as i say about dr donna specter who is my co-host on the expert vet on radio pet lady network where the pet cancer vet show is with your wife um i always think of her as a detective because often yep. you internists come up you, you face a problem that other people are scratching their head and you just have a better head scratcher. You just have more knowledge in the more arcane or confusing situations. Yeah, it's a combination of things. It's certainly more knowledge because of the training you receive to become a board certified, you know, whatever internist. Right. In, in, right. in my case, but but then also it's just the cases. You know, I've seen hundreds and thousands yes. of cases that other vets will never see. Um, so even if it's a rare disease and I've seen three of them, that's you know, a lot. most people have yeah. never seen any. Yeah. Right, so right. It just all helps to piece, like you said, the puzzle together. Yes. And so, like, for instance, today there was a you know, dog who was vomiting. We wound up diagnosing them with a, a foreign object that was lodged in the esophagus. What, what size of dog? Uh, this was a small little Chinese crested dog. Oh, my and, goodness. Um, yeah, and there was a piece of bone stuck in the esophagus. A piece of and bone? Had it, this dog been on a bone, a, a raw bone diet? No, I hadn't. In fact, uh, the owners did not know that there was any ingestion of a foreign wow. object. It was just my dog vomiting, and I'm not sure why. Um, so how do so, you yeah. and how do you remove that under anesthesia? You can, you have to do surgery, or you could remove it with a tool. 
in the esophagus, that's one of the that's one of the emergency situations where if there's something in the esophagus that needs to come out as soon as possible, and that's where we go in with an, an endoscope, which is right. a, a camera attached to this hose that can go down and see what's going on, and then with instruments we can grab it and either pull it out or push it in, which, wow. whichever is the best. So, you, but um, you do you actually do that procedure, or does that get taken care of by a different specialist? No, that's me. Wow. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I see the cases, and there are a number of procedures that, you know, as an internal medicine specialist that I'm responsible for, whether it be ultrasounds or endoscopy or bone marrow aspirates or feeding tubes or CT scans. Wow. You know, there's a, a large list of things that, you know, fall under my, you know, supervision. Whoa. In human medicine, that would be many different subspecialists. So you... While you may be the detective, you were a lot of different hats. Okay, so we have a little Chinese crested who was vomiting but breathing still, thank God, right? Yep, and then we have another dog who had a, was not breathing well, speaking of breathing. Right. And we wound up diagnosing him with a certain type of heart condition, a, an irregular heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation. Yes. What kind of dog was that? This is a Bernice Mountain dog. A young, old? Uh, this is an old, for a Bernice, older. is a seven-year-old dog. Medium, media. Those of us with large dogs like to call that middle age, but the truth is they're so totally senior. We know that. It's so, true. so here we have a dog with difficulty breathing. I know that your in-laws, because on the pet cancer vet we had discussed it, your wife, Doctor Ettinger's, um, her her family's Labrador Retriever was getting older and having difficulty breathing and slowing down. And in that case, because they sort of, I guess, just thought it was old age, discovered a huge mass on the lung. Is any of, is any, uh, I always feel like we're all so selfish. We want to say, well, how will I know if that's happening to my own pet? How will I know if I need to get to the specialty center? Um, difficulty breathing to the point of gasping or just labored or what should we look for in those situations? Yeah, I mean, this dog specifically was just having more labored breathing, was very lethargic and didn't want to move around. Uh, and it can be as severe as uh, an animal who is struggling to breathe. You can actually tell that their gums and tongue are turning more of a bluish yes, tinge. Yes, yes. Uh, that's certainly the most severe. Uh, and whereas the more of the mild cases, you just notice that they're just not breathing quite as nor as slow as they used to, or maybe they went out for an exercise and they just really seem tired yes. afterwards or or you take them out for that walk and they just can't seem to go as far as they used to you know those are some subtle changes that can really clue you into something going wrong with either the heart or the lungs it can and, be and, either for those cases and would, would we ask our vet if our vet didn't know to ask for it and if they didn't have the equipment maybe send them to asc for an ultrasound or an x-ray i mean what is that what do you use as your first diagnostic tool usually well actually the first diagnostic tool is always an exam Right. You know, yes, a stethoscope. With just an exam, I can tell whether we're dealing right. more with a heart problem or right. a lung problem. Um, but then, you know, regardless, most of the time, the next step is going to be an X-ray of the chest, okay. which will let me look at the lungs themselves, let me look at the heart, let me look at the the blood vessels in there and see what's going on. Okay, so you've but gone. Then, yes, there are, there are times where you need to even progress to the next step, which is like an ultrasound of the heart or an echocardiogram. And you have a cardiologist on staff, so at some point you then consult with the cardiologist? Correct. For instance, that dog with the atrial fibrillation, you know, we diagnosed the atrial fibrillation, but then the cardiologist came in and did an ultrasound of the heart to look wow. for any other disease that might be with the muscle itself. So it, the great thing is you, have, you do have layers of specialty 
for example, when I my dog had a, an ACL repair, they had noted some some irregularity in the heart while he was under anesthesia, and they brought in the cardiologist who wanted to do a whole workup. It turns out that's just what my dog does when he's under anesthesia, but it is kind of fantastic to be somewhere where things, when they're discovered, you can discover that much more. It is, and I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but I think that's one of the great places, things about our place is how well we work together that people never even see. For instance, the yes. case today um, was involved with a, a mass in the chest, and I talked to the oncologist, I talked to the surgeon, all without the owner ever really knowing that that was going on behind the scenes just to try to get the best I could for, the, for that particular patient. You know, it's sort of like... Um, Carrie, it's like what people used to say about the Mayo Clinic, that you would go yeah. there, that rich guys and gals would go there for their once a year, and every kind of specialist would check every part of their body inside and out, and then they'd all sit together and confer about what they'd found. And that mm -hmm. seems in the best of all possible worlds kind of a dream medical situation. We have a team of people. There's no ego. There's no territoriality. Everyone's just there for the patient, and the communication is only about that. And in a funny sort of way, it's like you're getting other doctors for free almost because there's this this brain trust going on, kind of a oh, think no, that's tank. Exactly, that, yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, for if for human medicine, most places, it would just be, okay, you need to go meet with the that's surgeon. Right. And then, okay, now you need to go that's meet with the right. oncologist. Yep. And those will happen days to weeks that's apart right. before you ever really get a consensus as exactly. to what's going on. Exactly, which is, I think, why people used to go to the Mayo Clinic for that reason, and, and maybe they still do. So now you've so these dogs were 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 already there, already kind of of admitted, if you will, by the time you got there at the crack of dawn, these Correct. these two, and and then what else came next? Well, for instance, that one that there was another case that was very interesting because it was a cat who came in who just vomited and seemed a little constipated, uh, and they took an X-ray because the cat had had constipation problems, and while they were taking an X-ray of the the abdomen to look for how much you know fecal material yes. backed up, yes. they got part of the chest on that x-ray, and they saw a mass. Oh, my and, God. And you know, completely no symptoms with that. You know, there's, there's, wow. there's a small enough mass that I wouldn't expect any symptoms, but because they were looking at one thing and happened to catch something else, we were able to find out that this, you know, cat has a mass in the chest and able to look into it now before it becomes symptoms yeah. come up later on. And it might be too late to treat. Exactly. Exactly. You hear of those things sometimes in medicine where just, you know, you fall down, you thought you broke your arm, and then they find out this other thing that, thank God, they found it early. Okay, right. so was this, the, was this the, the patient with the mass in their chest? Correct, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's three. How many more? Do we? we have six more to go. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. We had another animal who th this one just basically had some urinary accident issues. Was okay. Was really urinating more frequently than than was normal yep and they had done a number of tests elsewhere and uh, could not find what was wrong and actually decided just to leave him here today so he can be evaluated by me in the morning um, and that's why sometimes they're not even always emergency sometimes right. it's just something's wrong I went to the emergency clinic they know they need to see me but you know either they can't make an appointment or they just want to leave for the day then I will take over that day and, and this animal we actually wound up finding that there was uh, a tumor on the adrenal gland, which oh is my a producing gland in the body that, that can cause drinking and urinating abnormalities. Wow. And it's a very common problem in dogs, too, so you know, we were able to find that out for them. And is that sometimes benign? 
Actually, yeah, fit for uh, adrenal tumors at least, uh, 50% of them yeah. are benign and 50% of them are malignant. That's so why I asked because I thought, chance. yeah, that was one of those kind of like maybe good one. Maybe your wife won't be involved. I don't want to, you know, take her out <laughs> of the picture. But wouldn't that be great to take out the mass that turns out to not be cancer and that you then the dog has a, a, a nice longer life? Wow, it, it's an incredible variety of body parts and of discoveries that, would not be found without that kind of level of, of investigation. It's true. And, you know, you, everybody has their interests and their favorites. And just like in human yes. medicine, there is more subspecialty going on. Mm-hmm. That's also a direction that the veterinarians are going towards. That's For instance, right. I'm boarded in internal medicine, but uh, there's, there's now some headway into going into further specialization that will say, now I'm a nephrologist or I'm a gastroenterologist. Currently, that doesn't really exist. You're, you're an internal medicine doctor and you do all that. You may like nephrology or gastroenterology, but you're not really technically boarded just right. in that. But you're you boarded just, in internal medicine. And in fact, in your case, nephrology, the kidneys, is of great interest to you, yes? It is, yes. I used to... Um, you know, help run the dialysis center in New York City, and uh, I did some extra dialysis training throughout my career. So I, that's the, the next time I you come on, it. it'll probably be 11 o'clock at night some night. I would, I had no idea there was dialysis for 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 dogs and cats. I'd there is there never, is. I'd never heard of it, and I thought I was like right at the, you know, on the beating pulse of what was out there. When, when your wife had written that to me, I thought, oh, so Carrie must have practiced human medicine. I really <laughs> didn't know there was dialysis for dogs and cats. That's amazing. That, that, that's a whole conversation in and of itself. Okay, so now what other, who else was there waiting for you? This isn't even counting the patients that were already waiting for you. It's true. No, and, and speaking of kidneys, there was a, a cat who came to see me because of some changes in the kidney enzymes that had been noticed on a blood test and that the kidneys seem larger than they should be on examination. And so they referred to me to be further evaluated and to do an ultrasound. And uh, realistically with that, you know, cat, we did find that the kidneys are quite large and they do look very, you know, short of a better word, just irritated or annoyed. They're, they're larger than they should be. There's some fluid leaking from them. Um, it's just a sign that something has damaged those kidneys and it's a really active process that's going on wow. right now. So the sooner you jump on that and find out what's wrong, the better you're going to be rather than, you know, wait on a blood test and them yes. home, come on back. It's, yes. You just got to be really aggressive with those types of cases. And a case like that, which is something I've never heard of a situation like that, mm-hmm. what, what comes to your mind? As you say, you've seen the dozens, hundreds, thousands of dogs and cats Leaking kidneys sounds terrible to me as a lay person. Like they're, you know, they're inflamed, they're in, they're in, engorged, enlarged, and they're leaking. What does that say to you? To me, for cats with those types of kidneys, my biggest concern is some type of infection. Oh, okay. Or some sort of drug or toxin ingestion. Yes. Uh, those are the most common. Uh, and then sometimes, although it's less common, would be some sort of tumor in the kidney that, that's right. causing that. But more although likely something... have a slightly different, shape, different right. look to them. Something the cat took in that has yeah. caused and this reaction. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wow. But not like rat poison because then there'd be 
bleeding. I mean, do people put out rat poison anymore? I guess they well, do. Well, it's interesting that you say rat poison. The, the most common rat poison nowadays is the ones where they just bleed from them. Yes. They're, they're called co- anticoagulants, and uh, that would present very differently. But an old-type rat poison was more of uh, a vitamin D type of toxicity that would actually cause kidney failure. So we don't see it hardly anymore, but it used to be like that. I had kitties in my house in Italy, and, and people were put a lot of poison out. Sadly enough, they put it out to actually kill off any random dogs or cats so they wouldn't disturb the pheasants that they then wanted to kill. Anyway, it, I had a cat that nearly died from it, and, and but, I mean, it was such a primitive diagnosis. I mean, it was sort of like, you know, medieval so yeah. I wish I wish that I, there there had been all these opportunities for for knowledge, Doctor Huter. I'm going to let you go. You have so, I'm I'm just horrified by how many. I just feel terrible. I've interrupted this flow of of, of fixing and of diagnosing and of and of seeing what's going on. It's, I think I hope it's interesting to everyone as it is to me to just think of the incredible variety of hands-on that you can give and that people need. And luckily, all these nine people and the ones who'd made appointments realized they needed something above and beyond just your average care. I guess that's really my desire is that people, when they realize they're in a situation with an animal that's just not responding to treatment or not, there's no logical reason for them not being themselves, is like really get to the specialist. Don't don't pass go. Just go ahead. Yeah, I agree. I think that I'm I'm always amazed at the people I meet who say I never even knew specialists existed. I, I so can they imagine. Never even knew to think yes. about for something like that. So each time that we hear of a subspecialty of veterinary medicine, we're like, wow. And I'm even t- today saying, wow, dialysis. That's amazing. So it's exciting because there is a lot for us to learn and, and also to avail ourselves of in terms of what you have to offer. Thank you so much. Good luck getting out of there before any more disasters arrive at your door. But the good thing to, for their sake is to know that you're there. Thank you so very much. No problem. Thank you. Take care. We'll be right back after this quick word from our sponsors. Wow, that is just so amazing to me. I, I hope it strikes you all as incredible. Uh, We'll be right back after this quick word. Support for Dog Talk comes from Precious Cat Litter, which is privately owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who is dedicated to creating litters to appeal to pussycats and protect their health. All the Precious Cat Litters are low dust for the health of all members of the household. Touch of the Outdoors is their newest litter made from field grass that provides environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entices them into the litter box with the natural scent of the great outdoors. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in all their oils. And I am here with Arnie R. Luke and this gorgeous, gorgeous art book, beautiful book, The Photographed Cat, picturing human feline ties from 1890 to 1940. Arnie is a professor of sociology and anthropology at Northeastern University and a senior scholar at Tufts University Center for Animals and Public Policy, which sounds very intriguing. Professor Arluk, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. This this book is divine. And before we talk about what's so unique and divine about it, 
the book is dedicated to Delilah and Ginger. Are those your kitties or your or the woman who also is the collector of all these great images? Uh, they're both of our kitties. They we are. Each, yeah, we each decided to name a kitty. Oh, nice. Cats that were important in our lives. Wow. And are you a, like a crazy, nutty cat lover or just a man fascinated with how animals and society come together through the decades? Somewhere in between. I'm certainly a scholar interested in human and animal relationships, but I yes. also love cats, too. Oh, my. I have to say that when I first heard about your book, which is, you know, a university press, very, uh, you know, highbrow kind of book, I had no idea that images like these even existed. We all kind of remember the dog from Spanky and our gang, you know, those kind of images from way back. But the number of cat photographs that she has collected and saved and and your discussion of, you know, what these relationships were like and the change in relationships, were you, did the idea for the book come from the images first or was it, was it a train of thought you were following? Well, it was a, really a train of thought we both had. My co-author, Lauren Rolfe, and I um, both were interested in, in looking at what was done already with cat photography since we're, I'm interested in also in the history of photography and ah. are interested in animals. And so we looked at what is out there now, and we were pretty appalled at the selection. I mean, there certainly are many beautiful books, but as you know, there's one set of books you could buy that are very pretty pictures of cats where the cats are just beautiful objects. They're sleek, yes. they're pretty, and yes. they certainly are that too. Or there are pictures of cats looking like they're crazy, they're neurotic, they're having right. fun, which is right. nice. And then there are other books where the cats are um, just there as um, – kind of a cute little thing. So there's a book called Kittenhood that's a great example of this. And right. by the way, I love looking at those pictures too. But it seemed like they're all objects. You know, in these books, where are the people? And I'm interested as a sociologist in the people-animal side of things too. So I wanted to look for photographs that showed that relationship. The other and, the, and the book does, enormously so. I mean, way beyond what you expect because there's couples and there's single gentlemen and people are quite dressed up. And in some cases, the cats are dressed up. And it's very earnest. I mean, these are serious. You can tell they aren't random. These are serious relationships. Every time the cat is with people, they're really with the people, Right. Yeah, we absolutely. We thought in the beginning when we started searching for these photographs of cats in particular that we would not find many because cats uh, 100 years ago, which is where we started the book, That's were right. largely barn cats or That's cats. right. And we found plenty of pictures of dogs, plenty of pictures of birds that were actually in some ways more popular than dogs at the time as household pets. But then with some searching, we found just as many cat pictures. But I have to tell you, it was hard to find good cat pictures because as subjects of a photographer, cats aren't quite as That's right. agreeable as subjects. You've got to so, catch them. You've got to catch them right. quick. You've got to get them and you've got to get their attention. For every one picture of a dog where the dog is mugging for the camera, I'll show right. you 10 pictures of a cat where the cat's head is a blur. So yes. it also became a challenge for us to find pictures that were compelling and clear, high contrast, and that showed the affection that did exist between the people in the picture and the cats that were shown. Well, the other thing that, that took me by surprise is that there's quite a few posed pictures of cats, a little like William Wegman and his Weimar honors. I mean, there's some in which they might, one of the most uh, sort of startling and hilarious and divine ones, I'm, 
I guess you didn't put it on the cover because you really want to celebrate the feline-human bond, is the one that's the beginning of the chapter, Unstill Life, and it's called Now Smile. Uh, You describe it, but it's it's divine. I mean, how did they get those kitties to be... To be so, to be in that pose, and one of them to be the photographer with her little paw right on the, the 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 click. I don't know what you call it with an old fashioned, uh, you know, camera where you where you had to squeeze a bulb and they have her pressing on the bulb. Yeah, and they look I, like they could be litter mates, right? I know, I know the picture. It's a it's actually a photo postcard. A lot of the photographs in the book were mass produced. Uh, they weren't always in the book a picture showing a, a photograph of someone's own cat. This was to make money. And that particular photograph was made in 1911 in Portland, Oregon. And a lot of effort went into posing them just as much as Wegman probably does with his dogs. There was a photographer by the name of Harry Fries who became famous at the beginning of the century and worked for a company called Rotograph. And the Rotograph photographs were immensely popular in America. They sold millions of copies each year. But all of the pictures are animals in poses that you can't believe. And not just cats, by the way. They did rabbits. They did dogs as well. But they have every pose you can imagine, and they're dressed. Some people even think that the animals look like they're dead, but they weren't dead. In fact, Harry Fries had a pet cat, Rags, and he wrote extensively about his love and affection for Rags and how Rags learned to adopt these poses. And in fact, when Rags died, he was in great grief. So the relationships that were also interesting to us are even the photographers themselves and their connections to the animals. So and in many ways, it's the original LOL cats. Yes. But, you know, th- that's only part of the picture because the LOL cat idea it, we're also trying to get away from because we wanted to show this deeper connection and emotional bond that was out there. And that's what you see in the pictures that we have that were not the commercial ones, but these were the ones that each family made, either with a professional photographer at a studio or they made them themselves with a brownie instant instamatic camera. That's right. Which 1905 was the rage. You know, it was like having a cell phone and texting someone's oh, that's picture. that's funny. Of well, I think they're all very dignified. I mean, even the one where one cat is taking a, a, a it's really a portrait of the other cat. It isn't just, a, a, you know, a, a snap. It wasn't not meant to be just a gag. I don't know. It has dignity. And there's cats dressed up in here. And I have had some vet behaviorists say that there are cats who really enjoy it. They actually like being dressed up. And you know, what's interesting is these cats, some of them are dressed up quite elaborately, and it's it's clear from the expression on their face, they liked that attention. These were all, many, many of these were not barn cats. I thought exactly what you thought. The cat did not migrate into the home until much later, but these cats were all super civilized. These were not scruffy cats that were unused to being in people's arms. They're, in fact, many photos have people with arm loads of cats and kittens, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there were some people who uh, who would have their cats dressed up to have their photographs taken, so they would appear in the New York Times. You know, it was, really? It was, yeah, there was, it was really considered a a way that you would show that you've really made it in society, not just by having a fancy car or an address on that oh avenue, my. but you'd have your cat in, and they'd usually name them after things like the Franklin Roosevelt outfit or the Woodrow Wilson, after very famous people, of course, and then they would pay a photographer. A great deal of money to do professional uh, studio shots of them, and then the Times would cover it as a story. So it really wasn't done in a way to abuse animals. It was really a way to show great love for them. Um, and a sort know. of a celebration. There's also a whole chapter on cats that are that are mascots on Navy ships and other ships. That's a lot of them. 
you know, my favorite chapter is the mascot chapter. You know, it's interesting about that is that uh, earlier in the book we talk about, uh, Lauren and Rolf and I talk about how uh, men were in many ways emotionally prohibited from showing too much interest in cats in these pictures at the time. So a lot of photographs of adult men, the cats are on their shoulder maybe or on their lap, but they're not cradling them. They're not touching them. They're not holding right. the cat's face to their, to their own face. But with mascots on a Navy ship with 2,000 sailors, all, all bets are off the table. They, there's a great deal of emotion shown, and I think it's because there's some safety in numbers, and it's also because you're at sea for I don't know how many months That's alone right. with only 12,000 other sailors on board. And then you had this wonderful animal to develop a companionship with, and they actually competed to who would be the caretaker for the animal. You know, One of my favorite mascot pictures is one that shows a, a little room they built for the cat mascot, and they even put up uh, notes on the wall that were supposed to be letters that the cat was receiving from family at home. <laughs> oh, yes. When the cat I died, know what you mean. Yeah, when they would die at sea, they would give them sometimes an official burial at sea. Some of them even had ranks in the Navy. And this wasn't done as a joke because during combat, World War One, these were, in a sense, in the trenches, but not literally if they were at sea. But right. they were at battle with sailors, and they were a significant companion. By the way, they also served as ratters on ship, too, so it's not as though they got away without contributing to the war. They, they were actually quite needed because I imagine that uh, lots of rodents can get on a boat and there's all kinds of food stores that cannot be lost to rodents. So cats probably were super valuable and they weren't stowaways. It, it wasn't there just for uh, for amusement or for emotional sucker. They, they really were needed, right? Well, they were needed. And also historically, cats were thought to bring good luck. So they, they really ah. served multiple functions. You know, they provided a service. They were good luck. They were great companions. And they also lived well with other animals on board. You know, it was really a, 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 a zoo at sea in those days because there really weren't regulations on having animals aboard. So there were also dogs on board. Some ships had kangaroos. They had snakes. What about reptiles. the goat? The goat, goat. There's a great picture of a of one of the sailors with the goat and the cat. I'm like, the goat? What's the, what do they, like, use them for milk? Or her? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if they used the animals that way. I think mo virtually all the animals on board, if they contributed much, it was mostly companionship. But I like that particular picture because it shows uh, it shows very strongly the, sh the sailor's affection for both animals. Well, it's arms around each of them. I mean, it's actually hugging them. And what about the one where a sailor in full sailor regalia with a kind of a beret-style flat-topped hat it, it's written, handwritten on the photo, our mascot Pickles, and Pickles has been taught to jump through his arms, which he's made into a hoop. Yeah. They, uh, first of all, I think you point out something very important. They're all, many of them were named, and I think the naming of any yes. animal really shows it, it, you know, its interest to whomever is involved with it, although some of, them, some of them had multiple names. But we often do that with our animals in everyday life. But in that particular picture you mentioned with Pickles, which was taken on a, a British naval ship, uh, it shows the, the cat jumping through the, the sailor's arms. A lot of the animals were taught tricks. Now, the tricks were shown in the pictures, but the tricks also became something they could competed with with other ships which ship really? had the best trick which ship had the most animals which ship could had the most interesting looking animal so it became a sense of pride for the ship to have nice. these cats uh, and they weren't one sailors they were everyone's uh everyone's cat and uh, some of the cats in fact when the ships would dock and uh leave service some of the sailors would also compete over who would get the animal they weren't abandoned so they, nice. they did they did well 
They okay. did very well. There's one kitty who's actually on one of the many images on the cover who is just one of the most serious cats ever. The one wearing that darling little sailor cap with a little American flag <laughs> out the back and a full little sailor uniform, a little tiger. I mean, that that how did that get saved? One is so grateful that that your co-author Lauren Rolf found it, but that someone saved it. Isn't it wonderful? It is. That that I I love that picture. It's tiger mascot, and it was a mascot of the Golden State Post of the VFW, and uh, the, and it also has an inscription on the cat. Yes. Photograph. You know, a lot of yes. them don't have much to say, but clearly that cat meant a great deal to at least one or more people. And you're right, all of these survived. I mean, every picture in the book, in a way, is a small miracle. These are uh, one, most of them are 100 years old. And it wasn't until recently that the whole idea of collecting early 20th century vernacular photography even became something people did with much interest. So the fact that these survived is amazing. Part of uh, my, my co-author Lauren Rolfe's interest is in trying to preserve the pictures, and certainly putting them in a book helps to do that. Uh, well, we so can... many of them look as if they would really be a, a study for, for a painter. Many of them are so painterly in the composition of the photo you think, gosh, a, 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 a great portraitist would have a heyday turning any of these into painted art, don't you think? Well, not only is that true, but if you look at the very first ones, first cat photographs that were made um, for, for mass release in this country, they were first done as fine art paintings. Uh, in England, oh. where it was really the first rage, they would make animal paintings, and it, it morphed from that to making photographs. So the early, the earliest pictures we could find of cats here look amazingly like fine art pictures, and that's no. They surprise. do. Some they do have frames painted or photographed around the animal, as if that photograph was a painting, not a photograph. Well, you know, here here it is in the Halloween time of year when when there's so much excitement about grown-ups dressing up in outfits, which I have to be frank with you, still baffles me. I could swear it was a children's holiday, but it's become even more of a dog dress up holiday. And there are people who say, oh, it's undignified or the dog doesn't like it. And people think, well, a cat would never put up with that. But you know, the cat, the cats photographed here in outfits look totally happy. I know I said that already, but I just look at them again and they're just enchanting. The cat is like, uh, over here, this is my good side. Take me from this, from this angle. You know, they just, they're, they're whimsical, but they're, I don't know, they just somehow have a, it's not really anthropomorphication, it's like, but they, but it is, you know, there's, there's one after the battle, is that just not the sweetest thing, the two kitties, as if they were wounded soldiers dressed up? Yeah, well, it is, and uh, the particular picture you're referring to is one of those photographs that for some people's sensibilities might be hard to see because they're portraying the cats as though they're injured. They're obviously not. And the cats agreed at some level to do this. You know, the, That's the right. that made this couldn't afford to do this with animals that would be that disagreeable because they wouldn't be able to produce these pictures. And my, my sense is that the animals were, were, were trained, but carefully trained. And in the process of being trained, 
the relationships developed either with those animals, with the trainers or photographer, or as I said before, some of them preexisted. So these aren't random animals pulled out of the streets. That's right. Forced to do this. Or the barn or anything. These relationships have depth to them and obviously breadth because this covers many, many decades, 1890 to 1940. I guess what I really came away with feeling, Arnie, was that we all think we're so clever in the modern era. Ooh, we're looking at the human-animal bond. Ooh, we're figuring out all these brilliant things. You know, cats never really needed us, but dogs and we needed each other. And that's why we're more attached to dogs and they're more attached to us. And one looks at these photos and sees that that's just a bunch of bunk. To any cat lover they know, there are loads of cats whose world revolves around their humans and vice versa. And I think that, that the photograph cat shows that very deep and abiding respect, affection, cohabitation. This is not something that came out of necessarily need. This was truly something genuine. And, and the book to me, every, every photograph and every, every bit of writing about it really gives a sense of the depth of the weaving of the cat into, into our lives. Thank you. I, I, the cats, cats were and they are now very well ensconced in our society. It's nothing new. Uh, and in a way that that's comforting to know. It's that's exactly easy. right. That's exactly right. It's not our contemporary monopoly. It's been that's around right. Been around, and we know it will stay that way. Exactly. Arnie Arlu, thank you so much for the photographed cat. I know cat lovers are just going to love it. Also, a wonderful book to give people on the holidays, so people thank can you. find it on the Radio Pet Lady website and on the Dog Talk podcast. And just love talking to you. Thank you so much, and have a great rest of the day. Take you care. Too. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Kiss your kitties, hug your pooches, and enjoy the rest of this beautiful weekend, and we'll talk again next week. Bye for now.